Romans chapter 6, please. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, for the word of God. And I pray today that you would guide and direct as we study it. Lord, fill me with your spirit today. I don't know why, Lord. Or maybe I do know why I'm having so much trouble with this passage. I just pray that you would help with it. And I pray that you would guide and direct and enable me to have clarity of thought today. Uh, I pray you'd fill me with the, with the Spirit to preach accurately and clearly and rightly. And I pray also, Lord, you'd fill us all with the Spirit that we might hear and understand and receive this, your word. It is your word, Father. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a little bit since we've been in Romans, I think. We've had a guest speaker and a couple of things. And so I think we ought to do a little review. What have we learned so far in our study in Romans? This is the 16th uh, session as we've been working our way through Romans. So let's think a little bit about what we have learned so far uh, from, uh, from the, the, the book of Romans. First of all, in chapter 1, we learned that God is angry about the fact of sin. For chapter 1, verse number 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We learned that God's wrath is real and that God's wrath has been revealed against sin. 
In chapter 2, we learn that there is no partiality with God and that his anger over sin applies to us all, whether Jew or Gentile, whether we have an understanding of the things of God or not. All of us are guilty and without excuse before God. And then in chapter 3, we read Paul's damning conclusion about all that when he wrote in chapter 3 in verse number 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we learned that all are lost, all are without hope because of the reality of and presence of sin. Sin must be judged, and we are all infected with it, and so we're all lost. At that point, we were all depressed, and you all look depressed now. But then also in chapter 3, we learned the glorious solution God has provided for this problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Romans three twenty-eight. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We learned about justification, that key word that we've mentioned so many times, that those who believe in and trust in the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross are declared righteous. Holy, just as if they had never sinned because of that faith. Glorious truth. We learned that this is the only way to be justified in the mind of God, no matter who you are. It is by faith in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. It's not by being good. It's not by works. It's not by obeying the law. Justification is only possible by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, we came to understand that our sin, which so gripped us and kept us from God, has been completely and totally done away with on the cross. For it was taken from us and placed on Him. It was, I've got to get my accounting terms correct here, it was debited from my account and credited to His. All of my sins went to Him. And all of His righteousness came to me. Our sins are gone. Because of what was done on the cross. And then in chapter 5, we learned again that this justification, which comes only by faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, brings some wonderful benefits. We learned that because we are justified, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. All good things that we have as a result of our justification. You see, way back in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul had stated his theme. And his theme was the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He said in chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And since then, in all of these five chapters we've been looking at, he's been systematically unfolding that theme. And developing that theme. And giving us a definition of that gospel. And I don't know that we find any that's much better than the one he gave us in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. When he said that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached. That we were sinners. That we were lost and doomed to die and spend eternity apart from God in hell. But Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. And now all we need to do is place our faith and trust in him. And we can be saved. And we can be justified. Well, that brings us current to chapter 6, which we take up now. And in chapter 6, we see that the topic moves. There's a shift. 
We're not talking about justification now. Now we're talking about sanctification. In other words, Paul is not now concerned with our eternal life in this chapter. He's concerned with how we live in this life. How does a Christian who has been justified, who has been declared just as if he never sinned, who has been declared righteous in the mind of God, how does a Christian live in the here and now? How does it affect our life? And it's a valid point for us to consider, isn't it? We're saved. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That's wonderful to contemplate. We've been set free from the fear of hell. We've been assured of the promise of heaven. What could be more wonderful to contemplate? But what does it mean now? What does it mean here in Randolph, Ohio? In what is this? 2015? 16? What year are we in? Wherever. What does it mean to us now where the rubber meets the road while we're living this life? Does it change anything? Should I live differently than I lived before because I'm saved? Should my attitude towards sin or sinful activities be different now or should I continue in them as before? You know, Pastor Phil used to like to ask the question, so what? Remember that? Anytime he was looking at a passage of Scripture, he liked to say, so what? He seemed to call on you for that awful lot, as I recall. So what? And so let's ask that question this morning. So what? What does it mean to us in the here and now? And Paul is kind of asking that and unpacking that question in chapter 6. And so let's start right where he does. Let's start with the question that he asks right off the, right off the bat in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Stop. Let's stop right there. Shall we continue in sin? And we could paraphrase that question like this. We who are saved, is it okay for a Christian to sin? Is it okay? Shall we continue in sin? And we can start by stating the obvious, can't we? God is displeased with sin. There are a few things that are more clearly stated in the Bible than that fact. God is displeased with sin. And we know that sin is anything that violates the law of God or anything that does not bring glory to God. In the early chapters of Romans, we don't need to go back and hash this over again. The early chapters of Romans certainly painted a bleak picture about God's attitude toward it. He hates it. He is angry with it. He will judge it. And so, just based on that alone, it seems an obvious answer, doesn't it? Christians ought not to engage in sin. The Apostle John had something to say about this. He said in First John, he said, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, that's a hard passage. That's a difficult passage, I, I admit it. We could debate a lot of its meaning this morning. But there's one thing I think that jumps out of it loud and clear. Christians ought not sin. I mean, that's pretty clear in there. If John's saying anything, he's saying sinning is antithetical for a Christian. And so is it okay for a Christian to sin? We can say right off the bat, no. No. But Paul didn't, that wasn't really Paul's question. Paul went a little bit further. Notice again chapter 6 and verse number 1. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He has a little bit further there. 
shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and we might paraphrase that and say, wait a minute now, if my sin gave God the opportunity to demonstrate His grace, and that's what He said in just a few verses prior, you can go back and look at the end of chapter 5, and you can see He said that right there. If my sin gave God the opportunity to demonstrate His grace, should I just go on sinning? So I can demonstrate even more of God's grace? That's the question. He's asking in chapter 6 and verse number 1. And, and the fact is, it is a question that arises in all of us to a certain extent when we begin to understand and think through the ramifications of grace. Paul knew that question would arise. Look what he said in chapter 5 and verse number 20. Uh, where is it here? Chapter 5 and verse number 20. He said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through, it, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew this question would arise naturally from that truth. In those verses, he was basically pointing out that grace superabounds. And that the fact is you can't sin too much to be saved. There is no person that has so much sin in their life that the grace of God does not cover it. Perhaps you're one of those, and, and we've all all met folks like this, and I, I've had people say this to me, who would say, I, I don't believe that I can be saved, Pastor, because I have too much sin. I don't believe the Lord can forgive me for the things that I have done. We need to go back and read chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. The fact is there is no such thing as too much sin uh, in the matter of salvation. Grace superabounds. He giveth. More grace. His grace is sufficient. It always will be. You cannot sin too much to overwhelm His grace. Whatever your sin, it was done away on the cross. It was removed as far as the east from the west. It's paid for. It's covered. It's atoned by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't let the devil tell you that you've sinned too much to be saved. If he says that, say hogwash and kneel at the cross. Christ will meet you there. But Paul knew that when we that are truly saved to get a grip on the truth that our sins are gone, that they are paid for in full on the cross, that they're never to be held against us, when we begin to think through the ramifications of God's amazing grace, we are tempted to look at sin differently, maybe callously. Jesus already dealt with it, so why worry about it? That sort of thinking creeps in sometimes, doesn't it? I won't ask for you to raise your hands because none of us want to admit to saying this or to thinking this. But I'll admit to it. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that there's, well, I am ashamed to say, but not afraid to say that there are times that that thinking is in me. Jesus has already dealt with my sin. He saved me from my sin, past, present, and future. Every sin I've ever committed, every sin I ever will commit was already dealt with on the cross of Calvary. And so when you get a grip of that in your mind, you can start to think callously about it. But here in, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul clarifies that a proper understanding of grace does not mean a Christian is free to just go on sinning as if nothing had ever happened. It is true you cannot sin too much in order to be saved. It's also true you can sin too much as a Christian. Look at his answer in verse number 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, exclamation point. Now, in the English, that's probably the best we can do uh, with what he was saying there. But what he used there was about the strongest uh, negation that you can think of in the Greek language. 
Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's basically, I've, I've heard it translated various different ways. Uh, it means, uh, may it never be. It means absolutely not. It means away with the thought. It means it is inconceivable for it to be thus. It means it is unthinkable. It should not even be considered. It means God forbid. In other words, no. We ought not to do that. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So is it okay for a Christian to sin? No. Should we continue in sin to give God's grace a better opportunity to shine? Certainly not. So then there's another question. What then should be a Christian's attitude towards sin? What should it be? And let's pull out a couple phrases from the rest of the chapter, just a couple, to see if they help. First of all, look with me at verse number two. He said, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Look at verse number seven. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The first thought I would suggest Paul is saying here about what our attitude ought to be towards sin is to recognize that a Christian has died to sin. Died to sin. Now, does this mean that we no longer want to sin after we are saved? How many of you think that's what it means? No hands. Good answer. Does it mean that sin no longer has power or influence over us? Obviously not. I mean, the fact is, anybody who's been saved more than five minutes knows that's not true. Knows that they still have within them a sin nature that is warring against them. They they know that. We experience that. We know that cannot be what it means. I'm reminded of an incident from my teenage years. It's one I've shared before, I think. I can't remember, but took place here, in this very place. I was, uh, I don't know, a teenager of some, some age. And I was sitting very in the back, right, right about where Todd's sitting this morning. And I was sitting back there as a teenager because I could goof off back there. That's probably why Todd is sitting back there, too. <laughs> the preacher was preaching and the invitation was given that day. And that day a lady got up and she walked toward the front. And she made her way toward the, the front of the church. And, of course, when I think about that, I'm reminded of another incident. Uh, I think I've shared this one as well, too. I can't remember. I can't remember these things. But I remember the story of a, uh, this, I don't know if this one's even true, but an elderly lady who had decided to come to church on the Lord's Day. And she had uh, the sniffles. She had a snotty nose. But she decided to come anyway. And as she was getting ready to leave her house, she realized she didn't have any Kleenex. And so she put a roll of toilet paper in her purse. Have I told this story before? She put a roll of toilet paper in her purse and she sat all the way in the back, about where Josh is sitting. And she managed to get through the entire service without any horrible disaster. But toward about the time the invitation began, her nose was running to the point where she had to do something about it. And so out came the roll of toilet paper to wipe her nose. But unfortunately, she fumbled the roll of toilet paper. And it rolled all the way down the aisle to the front. And so the invitation concluded. People began to file out. She was sitting back there with her head in her hands, hoping that no one would notice that the toilet paper was hers and hoping the place would clear out so she could run up and gather the thing. And all of a sudden she heard a voice and she looked up and there stood the preacher holding this wadded up pile of toilet paper. He handed it to her and she said, I'm so sorry, Pastor. And she was all apologetic. He said, don't be. That was the first thing to come down this aisle in years. And see, that's the way it was here in those days as I sat back there. And so this woman got up and she walked to the front of the church. And as she's walking to the front of the church, I perked up. What? Someone is actually going forward. And as she went forward, she was holding a 
a pack of cigarettes over her head. I'm sure I've told this story before. And she came forward and she knelt at the altar and she asked for prayer that she could defeat that habit in her life. And she laid the cigarettes on the altar and that was the end of the service. And I remember that. I was touched by that. It was interesting to me and, and uh, affected me. But then it also happened again a few weeks later. And the uh, same thing was repeated. She showed up in church again. She came forward again, holding a pack of cigarettes. A few weeks later, same thing. And it was an indication. It was an indication of the ongoing struggle with sin that is in this life that we have. Sin doesn't disappear. That's not what Paul means when he says that we died to sin. It cannot be. From time to time, we're reminded in Scripture that there are three tenses to our salvation. Past, present, and future. In the past, at Calvary, on the cross, we were saved from the penalty of sin. And Paul's been dealing with that all throughout the first five chapters. And in the present, we are progressively being saved from and delivered from the power of sin in our life. That's kind of what he's talking about in chapter 6 and other parts of the, of the book. And someday, whether we attain it by death or by rapture, we will finally be saved from the very presence of sin. I've been writing a little booklet recently and working on it, and kids have seen it. I don't think anybody else has, but uh, it's, it's about what I've been going through and dealing with in my grief and losing Beth. And one of the chapters in that particular booklet is about the things I'm thankful for. And one of the things I said therein is, I'm thankful that she's freed from sin now. That enemy that we all struggle with all our lives, no longer even present for her. She's not even a single concern about it. It doesn't even exist. What joy this must be. Can you imagine that? Now, Beth has reached that, as have all believers who have graduated to heaven. But for you and me, that's future. It hasn't happened yet. And Paul's reference to the fact that we died to sin is about the present. He's talking about our life now. He's talking about that present tense of salvation where we are progressively being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And so it takes us all back full circle, back to where we started. What does it mean that we died to sin? It's key. We need to understand it. Well, I think it means that we're no longer under its grip. I think it means that it might influence us and we might struggle with temptation toward it. But its ability to destroy us died on the cross. Timothy Keller says this about it. Let me read a little of his comments on it. He said, if a wicked military force had complete control of the country and a good army invaded, the good army could throw the wicked force out of power and give the capital and seat of government back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live out in the bush. This guerrilla force could create havoc for the new rightful government. It could often impose its will on part of the country, even though it could never get back into power. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it has no more power and influence within you. It does. But sin can no longer dictate to you. Though you may obey it, and though the Bible predicts you will obey it, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. You have died to it. It can be dead to you. Should the Christian keep on sinning? No. How can we when we died to it? That's Paul's argument. In a former job, I sat next to a co-worker who was of Italian and Greek descent. 
He was a very flamboyant and interesting person, and I loved working with him. I spent more time laughing at that job than I did working, I'm sure. I remember one particular day I looked over at him. We had we sat in a quad cubicle, and his desk was next to mine. And he had been telling me about somebody that he was mad at, somebody that had wronged him in some way. I don't remember the details of the thing. I just remember he was mad. But I asked him about him, and he did not even look up from his computer. He just deadpanned, he's dead to me. He's dead to me. And anybody who heard that knew what he meant. The person was cut off. The person was no longer a part of his life. He was going to have nothing further to do with him, just as if the person were six feet underground. And I think in a way, that's what Paul is saying. Christian has died to sin. Sin is dead to me. And it's dead to you. Well, that's one thing that helps us. Let me look at one more. One more phrase that Paul pulls out of here that maybe helps us as Christians to understand how we ought to deal with sin. Notice verse number four again. He says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I think the other thing that helps us is recognizing that a Christian is a new creation. A Christian is a new creation. He also says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin in verse number six. Now, I like verse number four, and I like to quote it whenever we're baptizing, because it really depicts for us our union with Christ. What was true of Christ is not true of us when we've trusted him, when we've become a believer. He died and we died with him. He was buried and we were buried with him. He rose and we will rise with him. These are all wonderful things to contemplate. But what I want us to see this morning is the result that Paul mentions. We died with Christ, we were buried with Him, we rose with Him, so that we might walk in newness of life. It's the purpose of the whole thing. In other words, a Christian's life should be different after he or she has been saved. Rising from that water is a picture of new life. And that new life should be different. Sin was part of the old life. And it's a similar, similar thought in verse number 6 that we read there just a moment ago, where Paul says that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Our old man. What's he talking about there? Some people would crudely use that phrase to talk about their father. Is that what he's talking about there? Was Paul saying our dad was crucified with Christ? Of course not. That's not what it means. That phrase simply refers to the person we were before we were saved. It refers to our lost identity. The real me before I was changed at the foot of the cross. The song said, I was once a sinner, but I came. There was a change. My entire identity changed when I came to the cross. And that affects my attitude towards sin. Sinners naturally sin. Christians naturally resist sin. And so in that description, our old man, we see the reality of that change, the change that ought to be there in us. Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Old man, new man, these phrases describe change, a new creation, newness of life. Mosey Lister, and I don't think I could improve on the way he put it in his wonderful song. He put it like this. He said, I've been to the river. I've been baptized. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been changed from the creature that once I was. And redeemed is now my name. I've been changed. I've been newborn. All my life has been rearranged. What a difference it made when the Lord came and stayed in my heart. Oh, yes. I've been changed. 
Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me quote from Keller one last time. He said, While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It is still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. When a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity, who they are. Why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There is a new me. And when a Christian sins, they are acting against their identity. Why would they sin? Therefore, if I sin, it's because I do not realize who I am. I have forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. So, is it okay for a Christian to sin? No. Should a Christian sin so more grace can be demonstrated in his life? Absolutely not. What then should be the Christian's attitude towards sin? Well, it ought to reflect that they've died to it, that they are dead to it, and it to them. And it ought to reflect that they are not the same old man they were before Jesus died for them. They are a new creation, and they ought therefore to walk in newness of life. I want to leave you with three practical steps. And there's so many things we could talk about in chapter 6. And, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on some of these a little bit more fully later. But let me just mention these. Three practical steps Paul gives here that may be helpful the next time you find yourself conf- confronted with the opportunity to sin. They're in, in verses 11 through 13. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Three things that we can put into practice, which I think will help us in dealing with sin as Christians. Number one, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. (coughs) In other words, accept the truth of it, believe it, and let that truth affect your behavior. Accept that you're dead to it. The next time you're tempted by sin, remind yourself that you died to that and it's dead to you. Say it out loud if you have to. I can't do that. I'm dead to that. I can't do it. This is the first thing is to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. The second thing he mentions there is do not let sin reign. I think it was Nancy Reagan. I think it was who used the phrase just say no. Wasn't it Nancy Reagan? And it might seem trite to say it. You might not think it's possible that we can just say no to sin. But Scripture tells us that as believers we can. Just say no. Don't let sin reign. It's dead. It no longer rules. Don't let it. Finally, number three, he says, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, the more time you spend doing the right things, the less time you'll be tempted to do wrong things. The more time you spend in righteous activities the less time you'll spend in sinful activities. You know, the Christian faith is not just a list of things you can't do. There are certainly things that you ought not do as a believer. I always, my my hackles go up whenever I hear somebody say that Christian life is not a list of do's and don'ts. There is an aspect in which it is. There are things we ought not to do. But the Bible is also filled with the positive things and activities you ought to do in place of those sinful activities. You ought to feed the white dog. And that way the black dog will get weaker and weaker 
And so present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So there's three things. I mean, you, can, you can think about those more on your own, but we'll wrap it up. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God's grace, glorious in every way, does not provide enhanced opportunity for sin. Rather, it reminds us that we're dead to it and that we should walk as the new creation we are in Christ.